I would hazard a guess and say that 90% of the people that listen to this podcast had a ritual of waking up as a kid on a Saturday morning, sitting in front of the TV with your favourite cereal and just watching every single TV show going. And with watching that telly, you would just get to know people every week. They would become part of your life. And we've all met this guest in some way, shape or form, whether it was back in the day on Kids Show Smile with that bum fluff and those gamers, his acting in Grain Chill and various roles, or more recently where he's been taking us all around the world, lifting the lid on hidden parts of society. And that varied career started in London. Welcome to This City, the podcast that reveals the stories, hidden gems and certified spots tried and tested by some of London's most recognisable names. Whether they're born and bred in the capital or have made it their second home, London holds a key piece to their heart. And this week, it's my Ghanaian brother, Mr Reggie Yates. Reggie Yates. Clara, what's going on? <laughs> I'm going to try not to spend the next few minutes or hours. Yeah. Who knows how long this could take, giggling and laughing, okay. because you're somebody that puts a smile on my face. Oh, that's kind. And I'm so very happy that you are on this city. Welcome to my podcast. I'm happy to be here. You make me smile too, Clara. So yeah, this is this city. It's all about people's relationship with this glorious place we call London. Yeah. And I know London is... London is you. <laughs> wow, I've never had that description before, but I am... A proud Londoner. Yeah. I love this city. I love being from this city. And given the nature of what I spend a lot of my time doing now, I'm everywhere but home. And whenever I come back, I love it. And there is something really special and unique in this city that you just don't get anywhere else. And I'd argue that it's the coolest city on the planet right now. I can't say I disagree. Yeah, I, I mean, it. you mentioned that you are away a lot. We, we see you here, there and everywhere yeah. doing all your documentaries, hosting different events, doing off the fashions, <laughs> doing it all. But um, what is it that makes you know that you're home? Like, is there a particular spot or a smell or a thing that makes you think, okay, I'm back in the ends. I'm, Do you know what it is? Yeah. It's just how diverse the city is. Yeah. The minute that you look up from your phone in the back of the taxi on your way home from the airport, right? And you look out the window, you pass every kind of takeout, you pass every kind of person and it's a beautiful thing literally um last night i was in wembley i was in northwest london i was on a taxi bike you know one of those limo bikes so like one of those motorcycles those a taxi. things are wild they're incredible but you get everywhere really quickly and yeah. if you're super busy and you've got eight things to do in a day you end up taking them a lot apparently sir ian mckellen is one of the most regular users of limo bikes gandalf on a bike gandalf himself okay but anyway we were driving through harlesden and we were laughing because we were counting all of the different nationalities that you saw represented in takeout places and restaurants and that's what i love about london like you know you're here when you hear 50 different accents different languages you see different culture you feel different energy and i can't be anywhere where there's just one thing and london is so many different things which makes it special i feel you on that i always feel a bit strange if there's just no other flavor yes when i go somewhere yes and wherever i go in the world i need to find okay where can i get good jamaican food where can i get good chinese food where can i get good turkish food like i, I just need to feel that i need butter and jam on my bread if you give me my bread with no accoutrement <laughs> i'm gonna lose it what are your absolute faves it's weird because it's changed a lot i've changed a lot i stopped eating meat and fish just over a year ago, which is weird for a West African, especially as Ghana's on the horizon. Yo. I was vegetarian in Ghana last New Year's and I got there, 
but I was kind of like, oh man, this is this is harder than I thought it would be. Auntie's looking at you sideways. Massively. Like, I remember we. Uh, this is gonna, this is gonna sound mad name dropping, and I promise I'm not trying to be that guy. But Giggs came to Ghana for the first time, and we all went for lunch. And Bark and Giggs and myself and Norte and a bunch of us, and everyone was looking at me weird when I was asking for no meat and my red red because I love red red but I wanted it without any beef in it and everyone was like are you sure are you serious and I felt super super stupid but I've stuck with it I'm not eating any meat so the takeouts that I used to go to and love have been massively affected by my new diet <laughs> um, so I love a Turkish meze and meze mengal used to be my spot I used to go in there and they go the usual and I go yeah and it would just be done. And I'd get like a half kofta, half chicken. I'd get like a big plate of hummus and, and cucumber rather than bread. But then I'd still smash the bread because it was warm out of the oven. So yeah, I, the Turkish meze is like my weakness. I don't go there as much anymore because I can't get my kofta. <laughs> but I love it. Oh, God, I love that fresh bread. Yeah. Oh, it's so when good. When it's toasty and warm out of the mm. oven. Oh, my God. It's like a soft pillow. Amazing. Where does your London story start? Because you mentioned you were coming into Northwest and you saw yeah. the different takeaways and stuff. Where's your face? Okay. I am going to argue that I am one of the most London people that you will have on this show. All right. Right. This is my argument. I was born on Tottenham Court Road. Literally, right? And I grew up in Holloway in North London, but King's Cross is where my gran was. When my parents broke up, I moved there. Uh, we were in Finsbury Park, moved to King's Cross, then moved to Holloway and then moved to South East London. So I've darted around. And when I was 18, I started buying and selling property and then I moved to East London. And since then, I've moved all over the place. And now I'm South London again. Right, OK. So I'm all over. I've lived in every corner, literally lived north, south, east and west now. OK, so somebody was going to put you on the spot yeah. to make you claim your ends. <laughs> oh, mate. Where are you actually claiming? All right, well, it's, it's difficult because... I'm not allowed to say that I'm North and South, but I kind of am because I went to school technically central. I went to school in Old Street, but my primary school and my college were in North London. But I was living in South London so at the time. So ask the question, Reggie. I, I can't. I can't. I'm London. I'm not one side. I'm the whole city. Oh, I'm not going to claim one corner. Kofi Annan of the, of the Boas. <laughs> The Switzerland of the of 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 the of the, of the ends. Okay, no, I, I got to respect it. So, so you mentioned um, the places where you went to school, but I know that like theatre school obviously was a big part of your yeah. your formation. Whereabouts did you go to theatre school? See, I'm very specific about how we phrase where I went. So, I went to a normal comp, like a normal city school, but Anna Share was the place that I went to, which got me into drama, which is pretty much the reason I'm sat here with you now. And Anna's wasn't a theatre school; it was a drama club. That's the way that I frame it. So, it was a an after school club that my mum could afford it was £2.50 a lesson and, yeah it was nothing and most of the people in the class went on to do really incredible things and when I bump into the people that I started out with at Anna's it blows my mind considering how far they've gone versus where we all started so Drop for instance names for me <laughs> well I interviewed a girl on my podcast. I interviewed a, a young lady from Finsbury Park who happens to play Miss Moneypenny and James Bond, who was in my class at Anna Shear, Naomi Harris. So someone like her, who, for all intents and purposes, shouldn't have ended up in one of the greatest franchises of all time, starting out in Finsbury Park, going to this local community drama group as a place to exp express herself and finding a career, it was and is one of those incredible stories that sort of just explains how special and unique that place was and the opportunities it gave kids like me and like Naomi and half the cast of 
every drama on British television right now. Talk me through like a typical day going to Anna Share. Like, <laughs> what bus were you getting on? How was little Reggie making his way there? Okay, so I used to walk to Anna's. We, we didn't have a lot when I was growing up. So I grew up in a council estate in Holloway. And Holloway is one of those weird areas, which is in the borough of Islington. Sorry, Islington from the people not from there. <laughs> and... Um, Islington is one of those boroughs where you get million pound house council estate, million pound house council estate, right? And I used to walk everywhere when I was a kid. And so I'd walk down my road, which is Liverpool Road, which went from the crappy, dirty end of Holloway into the really shiny, beautiful Angel. And Anna Cher was uh, and is, well, was, I guess, based opposite. Barnsbury Park which is a beautiful corner of Islington and the reason why I'm so conflicted about was and is is because the building is still there but Anna doesn't actually run the theatre that's now there the directors removed her when she had a bout of depression and this was I believe in the late 90s early noughties and it just speaks to the attitude that we had towards mental health then because she had this bout of depression and actively removed herself and went and found help And when she came back, the directors believed that she wasn't suitable to be around children and teach them. So they removed her name from the theatre, rebranded it and completely removed her and her methods from the theatre that still remains today. Wow! The theatre that remains today still exists, still has a ton of kids going there. It's called the Young Actors Theatre. And every time I go past that building, because I drive past it a lot, I'm always an angel, I'm always in Islington. It gives me so much joy because I remember coming out of there and being excited about drama or going in there with a play under my arm that me and my mate Danny had written and we were going to perform it and put our friends in it. And um, now when I go past it, I just think of this lady that changed so many lives, the lives of people like Kathy Burke and a ton of us changed all of our lives and isn't really being celebrated in the way that she deserves. You know, she's not getting her flowers. She will when, you know, her time comes, I'm sure. But as it stands right now, it feels as though her legacy is damaged. That's so interesting how you told me, you know, that story, that that truth about Anna, because the two things that jump out to me are of physical gentrification of yes. people, you know, doing up buildings, making them brand new and shiny, but also, I guess, a personal gentrification. Like you've taken this woman who has started something so pure to help young people and to get them to express their creativity. And you've just removed her because she wasn't, she wasn't shiny and, and presentable. Yeah, definitely. But it also yeah. speaks to the time and it speaks to the era. I think now, if anyone were to do that because of somebody's mental health issues, everybody would be up in arms. Now, there are a lot of people that are sort of against how many people are jumping on what has become, unfortunately, a bandwagon in terms of discussing mental health and how important it is. Some people are using it as leverage to get more work and... I have an issue with that. But at the same time, it's in the front of the public conscience. So there is a good thing that comes from it being zeitgeist. And with it being zeitgeist, I think that interesting conversations are happening in healthy places. And I think if it happened today with Anna, she'd probably still be running, at least have her name above the door. You know, she'd still be running her theatre. Well, respect to her. Yeah, she changed my life. I dedicated my book to her. She's an amazing person. She truly is. And like, you know, set you and as you mentioned, so many other people off on on such a brilliant path. I mean, how many times a week were you going to Anna's share? Uh, So I went to Anna's twice a week. Um, Yeah, I'd walk down there from Liverpool Road straight to Barnsbury on the weekday class. And because (laughs) you're going to laugh me now, because I was in the YPs, which stood for Young Professionals, I would go to Saturday class. Now, the young, (laughs) Young Professionals was a class for young actors that were actually working. So you'd have an extra class a week if you were 
professional. How did that affect your perception of self at such a young age, knowing that you were branded as, as a professional? Because I'm guessing, you know, what, you're 12, 13 at this time? No, I was eight. Eight years old this time. Yeah. Getting a little bit of money. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. How, how did that sort of um, affect, I don't know, how you viewed yourself as, as a kid? Did you still feel like a kid? Well, first of all, as a fellow Ghanaian, you'll know that that money I wasn't seeing. <laughs> that money went into my bank and I wasn't allowed to touch it. So I didn't feel any of that money that was coming in for a start. Second of all, also being a Ghanaian, you'll know that culturally there is a hierarchy in the house. If you are a child, you are told what to do and you will behave as a child. I may have had a job. I may have been treated as a peer by people the same age as my parents when I was at work. But at home, I was a child and I was bottom rung of the ladder and I swept and I washed up and I dried plates and I cleaned bathroom tiles. I did what I was told to do because I had chores. I had housework. So my sense of self hadn't really shifted. I think I was grounded at home and I was definitely grounded at work. And because I was being told I was a professional, I was aware that something interesting and weird was happening professionally, but it didn't change the way in which I behaved, which is probably why I think I have a career, which is why I didn't become the cliche and get to my teens and go crazy because it just wasn't going to happen. Not with my parents. Talk to me about your parents. You are the proud son of Ghanaians. Yes. Ghanaian immigrants, so first gen, second gen. Where did they first come over to London and where were they living? Do you know? Yeah, so uh, my mum and dad both moved when they were teenagers. I think my mum was 12 or 13 and my dad was a little older. He was about 17 when he got here and they met. I don't even know where they actually met because they divorced when I was still a baby. My mother is from Kumasi and my father's from Second D. Hence my complexion. My dad's from a seaside town, technically. So a big trading port in Ghana and West Africa. So Brits who came over and were running industry were constantly mixing and particularly for the traders, which is what my father's Ghanaian side of his family were. And then the English mix, it just continued to be that both in terms of mixing and in terms of industry. My father came over as one of many brothers. One by one, they came to the UK and he met my mum when they were young, when they were in their early 20s. It's funny because I was with my brother the other day. We were moving some stuff around in my house and I opened this box and I found one of the files from Who Do You Think You Are? Which is, if you've not seen it, a BBC TV show that I did a few years ago. And it's one of those amazing sort of history shows where they talk about world history through stories. So a family story might lead to an incredible insight into World War II or into slavery or whatever. And my family story on my father's side led to the British Empire and the fact that the UK went to Africa to mine and to grab as many natural minerals as they could. Let's just call a spade a spade. To steal. To, to steal rape, and rob and to, to pillage. pillage. There was a lot of that happening. Uh, <laughs> hence my connection to Uxbridge. <laughs> um, thankfully, in my sort of investigation, if you will, into the history and who these people actually were, there was a lot of love and there were real relationships and there was monogamy. There wasn't the negative side of what my apprehension was leading me towards. So I was really relieved to find out that there was a healthy relationship. But anyway, my brother and I were going through some boxes and I found one of the files from Who Do You Think You Are? And in it was a newspaper clipping from the 80s of my mother and father. Well, there were several newspaper clippings because basically they were trying to immigrate my father even though he was married to a British citizen who was my mother. So he didn't have a passport yet and he was married to a British citizen, which means that you should be granted stay yeah. because not only are you married, but you have children, so on and so forth. And they were still trying to immigrate him 
even though his father was a British citizen as well. And so it became this big story. And there's loads of clippings from The Guardian and The Times and all these different newspapers. And there's these incredible pictures of my mother and father. And one of the weirdest things about it is that I have the same name as my dad. So the headline is Reggie Yates gets to stay. Reggie Yates might have to leave. And there's pictures of a young dad and my mum. And it kind of looks like me and it's my name. And it's about being kicked out of the UK. Super surreal. That's a trip. Yeah, super, super surreal. Quite poetic, I guess, and full circle of the fact that, you know, you, you really have got your roots here. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I literally have my roots because I have the family tree to prove it. Mm. But beyond that, my father fought to stay here. And also, I was born in the centre of the sea. So that's my argument as to why <laughs> you can claim I might all be, ends. I, I might be all ends. I might be all city yates. I mean, I know you you are a motorbike enthusiast. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> but but when you do like you know walk around like different parts of the city, do you find you get different reactions in different boroughs? That's a good question. Do you know what? No, and I don't think that's because of how different the city is in different corners. I think that's because of the work. I feel so much older than I actually am. I'm in my, my mid to late 30s now, which is weird to say, but I feel like I could very easily be in my mid to late 40s, just given how much I've experienced and what I've seen. And because of that, and because of that amount of time on screen, my relationship with my audience is weird. If you're in your mid 20s, I've been on TV longer than you've been alive. <laughs> Facts, right? Yeah. And one of the beautiful things about that is for someone who's just come out of university, They'll stop me on the street and I go, you're right, Reg. And I'll be like, yeah, how you doing? And we'll have a conversation like we've known each other for years because even though it's one way we have. And when they first met me, and I've been told this many times, they were in their PJs, cross-legged, eating cereal on a Saturday morning watching. Watching Smile. Watching me and Fern and Dev, you know. That is a weird relationship to have with someone. So when they were a kid watching cartoons, I was the person introducing the cartoons. When they got into music, I was on Radio 1 or I was on MTV, or I was hosting the festivals. When they went to university and started caring about the world, I was making documentaries. And there is this weird sort of relationship with this generation of people with different points in their lives. My work has sort of connected with the things that they're into. So now, as I'm getting older and as they're having families and so on and so forth, and as I'm writing books and they're reading more, as I'm thinking about parenthood and as they're having kids, it's that weird sort of alignment where my work and my life aligns with their interests and it will continue to be that way. So wherever I go, it's right, Reg. Yeah, yeah, cool. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too, mate. And then we just keep it pushing. I love that. It's nice. Do you find that you get into longer conversations when you have time? Like, I don't know, have you ever been on the tube or, or the bus and have you really got into it with someone who's maybe agreed with what you do or maybe disagreed with what they've seen? This is going to make yeah. me sound like a massive penis. Um, <laughs> I don't catch the train and I don't catch the bus and I haven't done since I was about 19. And part of the reason is that I can't imagine anything worse than being locked in locked in a steel pipe and not being able to escape when somebody who you don't know wants to have a long conversation with you. <laughs> That's just my worst fear. And that was the way that I felt when I was like doing entertainment and doing radio, national radio and, and you know, uh, hosting Top of the Pops or whatever. That was my fear then. Now, my relationship with the audience has changed massively because of the content. So if I make a documentary about homophobia or about racism or about religion, faith, churches, whatever, people don't have a fleeting statement to say about those kinds of topics. They want to talk at absolute depth with you. So 
I'll have those conversations on the street sometimes. If I'm in a rush, I'm very honest with people and say, look, I can't actually stop and talk. I'm so sorry, but thank you so much for watching the show and I'll run on. But sitting on a train and someone saying to you, I'm so sorry, I know you're reading your book, but and you can't go anywhere, especially when it's silent and everyone can hear. Ah, that's just, it's giving me hives just thinking about like sitting on a silent train and someone saying, oh my God, I saw that. Who do you think you are about your family? Your grandmother's so beautiful. So tell me, what was her name again? What? I've had that on the street. And on the street, you can sort of navigate that and get out of it and go. But when you're trapped, nah, I'm all right. I'm all right. And the joke of it is, don't get me wrong. I love riding motorbikes. I love driving my car. The train is quick. It will always be quick, arguably quicker. The bike is quick. It gets me where I need to get to, but... I'll rather be, I'll rather leave five minutes earlier than have to get the tube and, and, and deal with some of that. I, re- got, I respect it. <laughs> I, I do not judge you. I, I, I really you. get it. But do you remember the last time you, you did? Oh, yeah. And this is part of the reason I don't do it. So when I was 14, we moved from Holloway to South East London and I was still going to school in Old Street. So Central Foundation Boys School, you probably don't even know it's there. If you go out in Shoreditch all the time, you've probably never seen it or maybe you haven't, haven't realised. So it's opposite XOYO. Okay, no, that I, building. I know, I know, I know the building. That was my yes. secondary school. That is, yeah, that's where I went to school. So Didn't Trevor, Trevor Nelson go Trevor there. Trevor Nelson oh, went yes, there as well because they got a big poster outside of it with Trevor Nelson's gorgeous Maltese head. Love that saying <laughs> like Trevor Nelson, Radio One, yeah. One Extra went to this school. Ronnie yeah. Scott went there as well. Right. A famous jazz jazz club fame. Yeah, um, a ton of people went to Central Foundation Boys, and um, I love being from there, and I love going to that school, but. When we moved from north to south, I used to have to catch the Connex South Central to London Bridge and then get the Northern Line with all the suits going into the city. And I would get pushed off the train. Like when, you know, you're fighting to get on in rush hour and they sort of push and go, it doesn't matter if you're late. And the amount of times I got into wars with businessmen because I was a little... I was kind of a little bit until I sort of hit 15 and I shot up a bit. Oh, we've seen the old pictures, the bum fluff, <laughs> the cane yeah. rose. Yeah, oh, that was a Iconic. very different time. I have to say, I'm very, I'm always in awe of you and, I've all, and I always have to give you the respect for exposing those TBTs because, wow, that, that struggle beard you had. What even, was it struggle beard, struggle moustache? Struggle tash. I couldn't wow. grow hair on my cheeks at that point. So it was just a thin sort of craft, finely crafted bit of fluff above yeah. the lip. I love it because I will always throw up a picture of me in my teens or as a kid. Pre-glow up. Well, no, because it's just important that there's a journey here, you know. Things are going really well and I'm so grateful for where I am in my career and where I'm in my life, where I'm in my, my headspace, where I'm in my mental health, where I'm in my health. But it hasn't always been like this. And I really do, I think it's important that you show that journey and you share that journey. I used to go through hell getting on the train and getting to school and sometimes there'd be train cancellations or whatever. And because of all of that, I just swore. I remember being on the back of the 171 trying to get to uh, London Bridge when there was a cancellation and thinking, the minute I'm old enough, I'm never going to do this again. So when I was 16, I got a moped. And then when I was 18, I passed my driving test. And now I have a bike and a car. So I just don't do it. And he never looked back. And he never looked back. Um, Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about your um, Grenfell doc, just because, you know, I don't think I'd seen a person get as close as you did, a person with your profile as well. Um, What is it about you that you thought made people trust you so much to make that piece? I'm a Londoner. Point blank, period. 
There's a sequence in the earlier stages of that film where we go down to one of the murals and you've got pictures, you've got people writing love letters and notes to people that they lost in the tower. And you can see on the mural how it went from people not knowing to them finding out that someone had passed. Because for a long time, if you remember, people were considered missing. We didn't know for sure if they'd perished in the building or not. I was walking down there. The camera was following me. I said to the director, look, just follow me and let's just see what happens. Because I've not been here. I've not seen this yet. I want to experience it first time on camera. So we go down and as I'm walking around looking at it, a white van passes by. Bibsy's on. He goes, you all right, Reg? I go, yes, mate. You're all right. He goes, you're looking at a mule, yeah? You're doing a film about Grandpa? I said, yeah. He pulls his truck over, whips it round. He goes, come here. Come over. I want, I want to introduce you to someone. I walk over to the van. He goes, this geezer's a survivor and he's not done any news. He said no to every journalist, but I want him to talk to you. And I went, how you doing? And we then had this interview with this guy in a white van about how he survived and how he got out of the tower and how he tried to save several of his neighbours and he couldn't. And he was shaking while he was telling me the story. And he said, look, Reg, I've not spoken to anyone about this, but I grew up with you. I trust you. So like, do me right, yeah? Put this out properly. Tell everyone what really happened. And that responsibility is huge. But that level of transparency only exists because of trust. And that trust only exists because of legacy. And I haven't made life-changing films, depending on who you ask, but a huge chunk of my career has been making bubblegum, if you will, making stuff that you can consume and enjoy and forget about. But the last decade has been about work that can actually start healthy conversations, shift the needle, going into difficult spaces and asking tough questions. And as a result of that, that generation that grew up with me, which this guy fit into, there is a trust there. And I am so grateful for it because of that. I feel I was able to do what I did with the Grenfell film. 70% of the people that I spoke to said, we're not talking to anyone apart from you because we trust you. We know you, you're one of us. And I was given a talk the other night where I was talking about authenticity. And this isn't me saying that I'm the most authentic person in the world by any means. But what it is, is me saying, I am not shy about who I am or where I come from. Shy is the wrong word. I don't hide the bum fluff teenager. I don't hide the fact that my father was nearly deported. I don't hide the fact that I had a stepfather. I have a stepfather that I don't really have a relationship with. I don't hide the fact that like everyone else, I've struggled with mental health and I found a way to be better at self-care. I think because there is a transparency and a self-confidence and an authenticity to what I do, people feel it. And what you see is what you get. You know, I'm not changing myself. I'm not code switching, not becoming a different person to fit into anybody's sort of archetype of what I should be. And because of that, I think we was able to achieve something really special with Grenfell. And I don't get to make films in London. So to make that film, it was an unfortunate privilege, if that makes sense. That makes total sense. I mean, how did making that film change your perception and relationship with the city? And I guess with yourself, because I think from from an outside looking in, you know, somebody that was watching it on the news, somebody went to go and, and visit the site, I think for me personally, I'd never felt more proud and ashamed of Londoners at the same time. Just how the borough treated those people. Right. It was really bittersweet. It was like, isn't it great how all these people are coming together in the face of this crisis? But isn't it so gross that... They're having to do that. Yeah, that they're having to do that. And that if these people 
were in private fancy homes mm. I don't think that situation would have happened do you understand what I mean so I just wanted to know like how, how well I was yeah. if, if we're going to talk about being ashamed and being annoyed I was ashamed at us and by that I mean the media I mean people program makers it felt as though at the time the focus of most of the content that was being created was about responsibility which is valid don't get me wrong who was responsible for what happened Trying to tell that story is incredibly important. What was neglected in that was who lost their lives and who those people actually were. And that is why we made the film the way that we made it. I am not a journalist. I don't want to be one. I never will be one. I'm someone who's interested in people and people are at the forefront of everything that I do. And telling human stories is what I really care about. And I was just a bit embarrassed that there was so little attention paid to telling human stories when that many humans, human beings, lost their lives. Yeah, I feel that. I just, I'm thinking of um, Khadija, yeah. say, photographer, brilliant artist, so much potential, and you just didn't really hear that much about her no. or anybody else, really. I mean, yeah. a lot of us just saw the number 72. <laughs> there just wasn't much else besides that number. The, the thing that, we were desperate to do in the film was to humanise some of those names and some of those photos that we saw. And we would never have been able to tell the story of everyone, but we wanted to tell as holistically as possible the story of the few that we could get to. And admittedly, it was difficult because people obviously were very sensitive and it was still fresh. So those that let us in, I'm still grateful for and I'm really proud of the film that we made. You in your peak London nightlife days because I couldn't talk to you. Oh no, I knew we were going to go here. Come on, man. I could not talk to you um, about your relationship with this city yeah. without talking about your nocturnal activities, which we all enjoyed, your club nights. Okay, I'm really glad you went for club nights because this could have gone in a very different direction. I mean, do you want to talk about that stuff? I mean, we could, but we probably shouldn't because that's a deeper conversation than my nightlife. Okay. <laughs> I enjoyed my 20s, let's just put it that you, way. Look, you sure did. Um, I want to talk to you about... <laughs> Oh I, I want to talk to you about um, Trading Places yes which was I can't remember where exactly we first met it may have been uh, when uh, on a TV audition but I remember first kind of seeing you out and about loads right. during your club night yeah um, talk to me just about that time alright so Trading Places was a club night that I threw with my best friend at the time a guy called A-Side who I still see he lives in uh, Los Angeles now and he's doing incredible things in the sort of party fashion and art space he's a really really talented guy A-Side and I became friends when he was working at Nike. So he was so good at his job that when he left, I think they ended up replacing him with about four people because he did that much. And he occupied the sort of culture and marketing corner of Nike, right? And as a result, he and I met, shared a love for sneakers because prior to Nike, he was at Crooked Tongues. I used to go on the forums because I've always been a sneakerhead and a massive fan. And it doesn't take over my life as much now, but I had a problem at the time that I met Aside when it came to sneakers. So dear listener, for those people that don't know, Crooked Tongues uh, was an online forum where people would just talk about sneaker culture right? and you could buy and sell and trade sneakers, right? Right, right. That, that was the thing. Crooked Tongues. eBay. Yeah. This is before social media, before YouTube, before eBay. If you like footwear and you were into sneakers, like really into it, Crooked Tongues would be the place and you like, you get tips as to where to go, what mom and pop shops if you went to New York to buy from, blah, 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 blah. So I was a young buck who was going on this website and he was 
like one of the gods of Crooked Tongues. Anyway, he moved to Nike. We became friends. We realized we liked the same music. We realized that we liked a lot of the same things, started hanging out, and then we decided to throw a party. And Trading Places started out in Sketch. That was the first ever one we did. So in that little bar in Sketch that should hold about 70 people, we packed about 200 people in there. And Sketch is a central London haunt. So that's yeah. what we're talking, I'm trying to remember the area. What was, where was it? It's just it? off of Regent Street. It's just still there of, now. Yeah. It's still there now. So it's just off of Regent Street. It's like a shishi bar type art space. The toilets are pods. They look like big eggs. It's like a really shishi spot. But this is 2001? Two, no, no, later than that. About 2003 or four, maybe slightly later. This is a long time ago. And <laughs> we we threw a party. It went really well. We threw another one. It went too well to the point where we said, okay, we need to figure out a way to manage this. So we started putting out invites that didn't have a location on it. And what the invites actually had on it was holler at your connect. And if you wanted to be there, you had to know the people that were throwing the party. So even if you got the invite, you wouldn't know where it was. And it got to the point where we were at, we said, okay, we need to find a home sod this trying to be covert thing let's call this our home which was the Bloomsbury Ballroom everyone will know that it's there but it will be an invite only thing and it got so crazy that I remember at the time I was on Radio 1 and I was doing the chart show on a Sunday and I was doing a request show on a Saturday request show finished at 7 I hung out had something to eat and then I was driving home at the time I was living in Highbury so I drove past the Bloomsbury Ballroom on the way home about 8, 8.30 and people had started queuing then the doors didn't open till 11. That's how mad it got. And the beautiful thing about trading was that it was it was our clubhouse. It was once a month and it was where young people in the city who were into the same thing could go and hear album tracks, could go and hear records that you wouldn't normally hear. Like we'd light an incense at one point, we'd turn on a red light, like we'd dim the lights. But it was just... You knew if you walked in, you were going to see people you knew and you knew the music was going to be fun and you knew you were going to have a good time. And trading was really special. What kind of music were you playing? Everything from Tribe B-Sides, Slum Village album cuts right the way through to the Rolling Stones. We just played whatever worked. And it was great because Ace and I have very different styles and tastes. So I'd go and do a whole funky set. He'd then play like straight New York hip hop straight off the back of that. And it was just that thing. It was like, yes we're London we can play anything because if you grew up in a city particularly uh, if you are our age the influence of America and American culture sort of occupied your early formative years so you loved Mob Deep you love Mary J Blige you love the Bad Boy era um, you love No Limit Records like there's certain records that you you read the Source magazine like these are moments and you read The Face you know these are moments of your childhood and then as we came of age it became a London thing, you know. During our formative years, we had UK Garage, which then became Grime. And we had our own sense of style, our own sense of dress. And trading places sort of embodied all of that, embodied our love of American culture and this beautiful Britishness that was black, white, Asian, all these different things. And it was just this beautiful mix. And the thing that I think that if ever there was a legacy of trading places, it's the people. Like, the regulars all your crew went everyone went trading but then on the other side the artists that used to come through you know that I were... wanted to talk to you about that Go on. about some of the names that came through because I think one of my specific brilliant memories of trading places and to this day one of the best parties <laughs> but most surreal parties I'd ever been to I think it was the summer 
of 2012, 2013. And you threw a Trading Places party and it was in this club called Paramount, which is at Tottenham Court Road, where you were born. Yeah, the top of centre point. <laughs> yeah, top of centre point, full circle moment. And it was the most surreal party because Q-Tip from A Trial Called Quest was there DJing. I believe Serena... Technically, technically my warm-up guy, but There whatever. we go. Serena Williams was there. Mr. Hudson was there playing the piano. Kid Cuddy was there rapping to day and night whilst Mr. Hudson was playing the piano. Monsieur from the Sugar Bays, a true Northwest London legend, was in the mix. And I remember just thinking, this is amazing. How about Kanye West performing? Yes. How about that? Yeah. Kanye performed and like Young... I remember when Young Jeezy... Like Serena Williams was in a ball gown and Young Jeezy was like rapping while she was singing something in the corridor at one point. And I remember we had to go and get Kanye from downstairs and it was this weirdest moment, like the super weird moment in a lift with me, A-side, Kanye and Don C. Like that's a story for another time. On top of the court road. On top of the court road. But that party was insane. Yeah. That was insane. But that was just classic trading. I remember we, we had a Questlove play in Stoke Newham when we did one there and we paid him a bottle of Jack Daniels. It was just, I would love it to be his wedding reception or mine. Okay. That would be fun. Like the trading place is redux. Yes. (laughs) We'd love to see it. Uh, Two final questions. Uh, Reggie, if you were mayor for a day, it's the baitest question, but I'm asking everybody. If you had your say over this city for a day, what would you impart onto its citizens? Well, no disrespect to Sadiq. He's a very good man and I love Sadiq to bits. So I'm not trying to step on your toes, good sir. But what would I change? I would... (laughs) <laughs> this is so selfish I would impart more motorcycle parking bays how about that Sadiq give us some more bays man and charging motorcyclists to park in Soho that's ridiculous it's the only place in the city you charge to park even though it's three pounds a week I don't want to pay it's free everywhere else Sadiq saw it out noted Reggie has spoken self care mm. you mentioned uh, you know you had to get to a certain place of just uh, I guess clarity of how you want to treat yourself yeah 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 um, where do you go I guess to escape or just to kind of make sure that you're just to check in with yourself I promise I'm not trying to be on brand here but London is so beautiful because of its parks I think that's one of the most beautiful things that we don't really shout about the green spaces and um, in the part of South London that I live there is a park at the bottom of my road about 200 yards to my right I go there walking all the time and there's loads of parks in my area but I found myself it's quite weird actually like whenever I um, I get a new album I like to really digest it properly and I like to walk and listen on my own I go to Regent's Park and I just walk with my earpods in and listen to an album from beginning to end. And finally, if somebody had never been here before mm. and you wanted them to experience London at its finest, oh. where would you send someone? You can't go to one place because London cannot be defined by any one thing. So they'd have to jump around. So they'd have to have a good Turkish meze, meze Mengal on Lewisham Way in New Cross. No offence, Green Lanes. I would say they have to go for a wicked yard food takeout. They'd have to eat some good African food. They'd have to go to several restaurants. They'd have to go to an Arsenal game. And they'd have to go to a good club night. Reggie Yates. <laughs> this seat is most definitely yours. Thank you <laughs> so very it. much. Thank you for having me, Clark. Thanks very much for listening to this city. Now, do take the recommendations seriously. And if you happen to go to any of the places mentioned, do let me know by posting a picture using the hashtag ThisCityPod and make sure you tell them who sent you. I mean, try and get a discount or something. Um, I've been your host, Clara Ampho, and this podcast is available on all your favourite apps, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
and CastBox. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review and tell your friends. I mean, we do like five stars. We'll accept four, but five is the sweet spot. Um, Thank you again for listening. And this has been a Sony Music fourth floor creative production.